Well, open your Bibles, if you would, to Revelation chapter 10. Um, we purposely stopped in the book of Revelation at uh, this pause, and I'll, I'll, I'll show you what I mean by that. But it's this fascinating interlude between uh, the end of the, the trumpet judgments and the beginning of the bowl judgments. And it's a fascinating uh, scene about a mighty angel and a little book or a little scroll that this angel has. And this angel has the book, instructs John to eat it. And uh, we'll see what the Lord means by, uh, by that tonight. And I, and, um, I moved the, the Revelation study to Sunday night rather than Sunday morning because we're just going to keep grinding for the next several chapters in, in just intense, uh, intense judgment. And I think that, that what you see in Revelation chapter 10 is the way that, that, that we can feel walking through the, the, the book of Revelation. It's just, it's, it's, we rejoice as being believers that we won't face this, but it is, it is heavy, and it is heavy, and it is heavy, and it should be, because this is real. This really is going to take place, and... And um, so in the Gospel of Mark this morning, Mark introduces his Gospel with the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And the book of Revelation is the final chapter in, um, in, in God's book, but it's not the ending. Um, it's the beginning of what awaits every human being. It, it unveils the future history of the world. Now, that's, it's not an oxymoron, the future history. Um, it's history because it's as good as done from, from God's standpoint, but it is yet to take place in the, in, in the timetable. It reveals the return of Christ, the setting up of His earthly kingdom. It ends with the, the eternal consummation of all things in heaven with Jesus at the, uh, on the throne at the center. And Revelation declares its content from, from the very first verse. It's a revelation of Jesus Christ. It's the, it's the unveiling of Jesus Christ. And it's also prophecy. It's what, what will soon take place. Revelation unveils. It makes visible the, the unseen things that are going on in history so that the church can, can be aware and foretells what's going to take place in the, in the future. Prophecy is a precise foretelling of what will come to pass. It's a divine look into the, into the future. Um, and God doesn't get it right uh, every now and then. He doesn't speak in generalities. It's not like reading a fortune cookie where you'll meet a tall, dark stranger. God gets it right every single time. It's what must take place because God has declared it and He's decreed it. It's what will take place, accurately declared beforehand. And, and by way of reminder, we've already worked up through, through chapter 9. And uh, thank you for whoever did that. And this is the, the, the outline of the, of the book. It's the unveiling of the things that are. And that's the, uh, the vision of the Lord Jesus Christ that we saw in, in chapter 1. There's the unveiling of, of the things that, that shall take place. Um, chapter 4, verses uh, 1 through chapter 22, verse 5. And, and that's where... That's where we are, the things that shall take place after. And then at the end, obviously we're all looking forward to that, 
chapter 21 and 22, the unveiling of, of all things, all things new. And God's shown us the vision of Jesus in chapter 1, the, the message to the seven churches of John's day in chapters 2 and 3. We saw the throne room and the transfer of the title deed of the universe and the, and the sealed judgments of, of God in chapter 4 and 5. And then there's the breaking of the, of the seven seals as the scroll is, is unfurled in chapters 6 through 8. And then we've seen six of the seven trumpets contained in the, in, the, in the seventh seal. And before God unleashes his, his full wrath in the bold judgments, he pauses. And that's chapter 10. Chapter 10 is... Tim Boyer? Now, how'd you do that before and can't do it now? Oh, you didn't? <laughs> I got ahead, huh? Yeah. It's one of the three interludes in Revelation. Are you controlling it or am I? There we go. There are three pauses between the seals and the trumpets when God seals the nation Israel. That's in chapter 7. We've already seen that. There's another pause or an interlude. It's between the trumpets and the bowl judgments, and that's the angel in the book in chapter 10. And then there's an interlude or a pause between the bowls and the final battle, the, the thousand-year reign of Christ in, in, in chapter 19. And, and the pauses allow us to, to catch our breath in, in the midst of this, this horrifying judgment. But they also demonstrate something else. It demonstrates the mercy of God. Even when God is pouring out His righteous judgment, even when it's the end, when, when His long-suffering has spilled over into, into wrath, He still desires people to repent. He still desires none to perish. And in chapter 9, verse 21, it ends after the sixth trumpet with this, with this ominous statement. Look at verse 20 of chapter 9 and verse 21. It says, the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands so as not to worship demons and the idols of gold and silver and of brass and of stone and wood which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders nor of their sorceries nor of their immorality nor of their, their thefts. That's the, that's the response of people to the sixth trumpet the increasing judgment of God, and, and God still pauses. There's still this interlude. And while, while few will repent during this time, God pauses for men to consider and for, for His people to, to find refuge. And, and we're going to look at the entire chapter, so let's read Revelation chapter 10, verse 11, 1 through 11. Here's the scene. I saw another strong angel coming down out of heaven, clothed with a cloud, and the, the rainbow was upon his head, and his face was like the sun, and his feet like pillars of fire. And he had in his hand a little book which was open. He, he placed his right foot on the sea and his left on the land, and he cried out with a loud voice as... When a lion roars, and when he had cried out, the seven peals of thunder uttered their voices. 
And when the seven peals of thunder had spoken, I was about to write, and I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up the things which the seven peals of thunder have spoken, and do not write them. Then the angel, whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land, lifted up his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things in it and the earth and the things in it and the sea and the things in it, that there will be delay no longer. But in the days of the voice of the the seventh angel, When he is about to sound, then the mystery of God is finished as he preached to his servants and the prophets. Then the voice which I heard from heaven, I heard again speaking with me, saying, Go take the book which is in the hand of the angel who who stands on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel telling him to give me the little book. And he said to me, Take it and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter. But in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it in my mouth. And in my mouth it was sweet as honey. And when I'd eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And they said to me, you must prophesy again concerning many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. Kind of a strange scene, and and yet a lot of folks would say Revelation's got a lot of strange scenes in it. But when you begin to look at the symbolism and understand it in the context, it's it's got a powerful message. Revelation is intended to be preached. It's intended for you to understand. In fact, there's a blessing that's promised. And God didn't give us His Word to obscure it. It's, It's not fuzzy. It's clear. And so when you look at chapter 10... There is uh, the calm before the, before the final storm. And, and there's actually these, these three scenes. You have the mighty angel and the little scroll. You have this thunderous message and a solemn oath, verses 3 through 7. And then you have John. You have John's strange command and this urgent commission to preach in verses 8 through 8 through 11. Let's look at this first one, the mighty angel and the, and the little scroll. Look at verse 1. John sees another angel, and he gives us the, the angel's description. He says, I see another strong angel coming down out of heaven. And, and the, 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 the word that he uses here for another means another of the same kind. It's... Uh, it's an angel, very clearly. It's, a, it's another angel of the same kind of angels that we've seen before. These messengers of God, they're, they're, they're proclaiming, they're carrying out God's, uh, doing God's bidding. And some people actually think that this angel is the Lord Jesus Christ because of the way that he's described. Um, but it's very clear it's not the Lord, and I'll, I'll, I'll show you that. First of all, it, it's not the Lord because of John's title for him. As I said, it's another angel like, like the others. Um, Jesus, whenever he's presented with, with, uh, with these characteristics, like in chapter 1, um, he's typically given a title like the Son of Man. He's not just called strong. And in this case, it's a, it's a strong angel. Also... I think you can be confident that it's not Jesus because the angel comes down out of heaven. 
And there's no indication in the Bible that Jesus comes to earth middle, in midway in the, in the tribulation period. But more importantly, in verse 6, this angel swears an oath by God. Look at verse 6. The angel who saw, who I'm, whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land lifted up his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and, and ever. Um, Jesus doesn't have to swear by him who lives forever and ever because Jesus is him who lives for, forever and ever. And there, there are several instances in the Bible where angels are described in this very majestic and powerful way. I mean, if you and I saw an angel, we'd probably pass out. We'd probably fall like, like dead men. How would you describe that to, to someone? Well, this is, this is a, the description of an angel. And the fact that this angel is a significant angel announcing the end of the age in the beginning of the final day of the Lord, this would be a fitting description. This would be a, a significant messenger. And so he's described, look at how he's described in, in verse 1, coming down out of heaven, clothed with a cloud, draped with a, with a cloud, and the rainbow was upon his head, and his face was like the sun, and his feet like, like pillars of, of, of fire. Now, now you remember um, the purpose of symbolism. It's to describe something that we have no concept of, 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 of understanding. Uh, we weren't seeing what, what John was seeing. Uh, and if you think it's hard to, you know, to, to describe an angel that, you, that you've seen, think about describing an angel that you've seen that nobody else has seen. How would you do that? It's, it's described in symbolism to, to give us the ability to imagine, um, to give us concepts that we're used to to help get a, get a picture in our mind. And so all this represents something. And the clouds represent power and, and judgment. Clouds are associated with the second coming of Christ. Jesus is going to come in, in clouds of, of glory. And that's about to happen um, after, the, after the bold judgments. He's also described as, as one who has a rainbow, a rainbow set around his head or, or, or upon his head. And in Greek mythology, the messengers of the gods had, had rainbows. But, but in the Old Testament, rainbows, a rainbow represents God's covenant mercy in the midst of judgment, doesn't it? God put a bow in the clouds to remind Noah and after, those after, about his mercy. And in, in, in Noah, in the judgment that came, the clouds brought the rain. The clouds brought the judgment. But the bow was placed in the clouds. When they saw the clouds, if you can imagine, you rode out the ark and everyone is destroyed and you saw the rain and the rain was what brought the judgment. Yes, the, the deep burst forth and water came from, from elsewhere, but, but the clouds brought, brought the judgment. And so God intentionally, in His covenant mercy, places in the clouds a bow to remind men of His mercy and that He'll never destroy the earth with water again. It's coming by fire now. And this is a... A reminder, I think, of, of mercy in the midst of judgment. You're right in the middle of, of judgment being, being poured out, and this, this angel comes. He also has a lighted face. It's a face that's like the sun. It's the face of one who has been with God. Do you remember Moses, whenever he went on the mountain? His face shone with the, 
the glory of the Lord. And this angel's face is bright as the sun, it says. It's indicating that he is a messenger that dwells in the presence of the Most High. It's radiating from God's presence. His, his fiery feet, it says. His feet like pillars of fire in verse 1. And, and fire is associated with holiness, will be purified by fire. And it obviously represents judgment. And it's interesting that it's his feet. The angel's feet stand. He says, look at verse, verse, uh, the end of verse 2, right? He placed his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. The angel's feet stand on the sea and the land just as God's holy judgment is going to stamp out the wicked in all the earth. His one foot's in the sea and one foot's on the land, representing that he's, he's standing over all. And it's His feet that are, that are associated with this holy judgment that's coming. And it's an amazing sight. But the angel's image is not the main point of the vision. The open book in His hand is the main point of the, of the vision. So you get this description of the little book. Look at verse 2. It says, And He had in His hand a little book which was open." little scroll. Now, when you read that word book, I know what comes to your mind. You think of something with a little binding with, with pages, but this is well before uh, Gutenberg came along and book binding. So this is the idea of a, of a small scroll or parchments. Now, they did glue them together and they did find ways to bind pages. Not everything was, was in a scroll, but what's interesting is how this is, is described. It's he has in his hand a little scroll that was open. And, and the, there's a perfect participle here. It's, it's, uh, it's having been opened, it is to remain open. And back in chapter 5, we've already seen a scroll, right? It was the scroll that, that was in the hand of the Lord Jesus Christ and that He was able to take from the Father, and it was sealed seven times. And that's already been unfurled. And... The, in the seventh seal, you have everything that's happening. The trumpet judgments, and in the seventh trumpet, you have the, the bowls. And in that scene, no one in heaven or in earth could, could open this, this book in chapter 5 because they were not worthy to, to loose the seals and look upon it. And, and you know that, that powerful verse when, when John's told, Weep not, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah he has prevailed, and he's able. And because of chapter 5 and the fact that this is a book and that it's open, some think this is the, the scroll, the same scroll, since, since it stands open. And um, Jesus has already broken the, broken the seals. And the folks that would say that this is that same scroll, it's small because John is going to have to eat it. So there's some symbolism, they would say, in the, in the smallness of the, of the scroll. It is a different word, but they can be used interchangeably, so we're not really helped much there. Um, so I don't, would say, I, I don't know for sure whether this is the, the scroll from chapter 5 or, or a different one. But what I can tell you is the same thing that's, that's on the scroll in chapter 5 and what's written on this, even though we don't get the full message, is, is, it's the same. Um, the book the angel has contains Christ's orders for the final judgment, and it stands open before John 
because it's about to be read and then and then carried out. Um, and you can tell that from the response to it, the solemn oath, and then the and then the command. So verses three through seven, you have this thunderous message. There's the response to this open book. If there's the the angel and the description of the scroll, and then there's a solemn oath that this angel makes. Look at this, verse 3. There's this cry of the angel. He opened the little book, that, or he has the, in his hand this little book that was open. The angel descends, this open scroll, and he takes the position of a resolute warrior. He, he puts his right foot on the sea and his left on the land. And then it says he cried with a, with a loud voice. He's bracing himself in this stance or position to execute the day of the Lord. And, and as he does, he cries out, and, and it says that it was a loud voice as when a lion roars. Again, to try to give us an idea of what that sounds like. Now, if we had Brian Hoffman here, Brian could tell us what a lion roaring sounds like. Have you ever heard a lion roar in the wild? Uh, I've not heard a lion roar in the wild, but uh, when I read this, my mind went back to a night in the Nepali jungle whenever I was there teaching um, teaching some pastors. I was over there with, with Sue, a lot of the children. It was my first or second trip over there. And we were we were in a very hot part of, uh, of Nepal, and it was in the middle of the night. And um, I went, side, went outside of my room to get some air. Again, it's just... It's just sweltering inside, and I was standing there in the darkness. Everybody else is in bed, and and it's in the middle of the jungle. So, I mean, literally from, you know, me to Ed is where the, where the, the jungle is. And um, as I'm standing there, you know, you could hear some bugs and others. A tiger was, was in the woods and, and was aware that I'd come outside, and, and he let out this muted growl, and I can't even begin to do it. Um, but I want to tell you that the air in my room became the most comfortable temperature I'd ever experienced before in my life. I mean, this West Virginia boy was inside faster than you can say hillbilly. I'm telling you, it was eerie. I mean, there's just no way to describe it. It was, um, you know, the hair on, on my arms immediately just reacted uh, to it. I mean, there's there wasn't even this consideration of, you know, they say in the moment of danger, it's fight or flight. There, no fight ever entered my mind. It was flight, I can promise you. I'll never forget the feeling. Um, and, and if a tiger sounded like that, you can imagine what the, the full roar of, of an angel sounded like. The voice of the angel was piercing. It sent chills through John. And we're not told what he spoke but it was a voice that was loud. And then there's a response. There's this seven peals of thunder uttered their voices. Now, obviously, you know that thunder doesn't speak. So, again, you have symbolism. There's, there's a response uttering their voices. And it's seven peals of, of, of thunder. So there's the response of the, uh, of the thunders. It... Uh, it should be. You see these guys that do like Bible codes, you know, sow the seed of uh, 
2995 and they'll give you the, the secret Bible code so you can play the lottery or, uh, um, you know, bet on the horses or whatever you do with, with, with folks like that. I'm not into numerology, but there are some numbers in the Bible that are, that are significant and seven is, is, is one of them. It represents completeness. There's seven days in the, in the week. You can see seven years in, in the Old Testament, it represents completeness or finality. And thunder is associated with judgment. And that's the context here. Mercy in the midst of judgment. In Exodus 9.23, as Moses stretched out his rod toward heaven, the Lord sent thunder. And hail and fire darted to the ground, and the Lord rained hail on the land of Egypt. Um... What's this voice? It sounds like seven peals of, of, of thunder. It sounds plural. Um, it could have been the confirmation of God's voice. You can't know for sure. It was added to the angel's declaration, whatever the angel cried out. But we're not told what the voice said, so we can't know for sure. But, but whoever it was, it was, it was surely terrifying. And it was in response to what the angel says with the open book in his hand. And John is about to do his job. Remember what John's job was? It was to record what he heard. So John knows what the angel cried out, and John knows what the, 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 the thunderous answer was. And he's about to record it, and another voice comes. Look at verse 4. There's this command from heaven. When the seven peals of thunder had spoken, I was about to write. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up the things which the seven peals of thunder have spoken and do not write them. Don't record it. It's a command and it's a voice from heaven. Now that's, that should, you should take note of that. It's interesting because there are three messages here that are kept secret. From us, it's only revealed to John. There's the message of the book. There's the speech of the angel. Whatever the angel said, there's the response of the, of the voice that was like seven thunders. And John's going to record it and put it in the book of Revelation, and, and God tells him, no, don't do that. And I, just, I think the note there for us is to remind us that while gosh, God graciously reveals much, we don't know everything. Um, there are still mysteries that, that God has not seen fit to reveal to us yet. We're not as smart as we think we are. We have a hard time grasping and rightly dividing what God has revealed, much less the mysteries that, that are there. Um, you remember Paul, when he was caught up into the heavens? He's given a thorn in his flesh not to exalt himself. And so I think it's interesting... This message is for John, and I'll show you why in a minute. And while we don't know the details of the message, we do know the topic. And you can see that from verse 5. There's this, this oath sworn according to God. Verse 5, Then the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land, that's reported three times. Again, this angel is taking a position, a dominant position, position of a warrior, Bracing himself over land and sea, it's, it's he's, he's standing over the earth. 
and he lifts up his right hand to heaven, and he swore by him who lives forever and ever. He swears an oath. And he swears the oath by God. God is described as the one who lives forever and ever, and he's the creator of all things, who created heaven and the things in it, and the earth and the things in it, and the sea and the things in it. This is a messenger from God who created all those things, and this angel is standing with one foot on the sea and one foot on the land as God's representative. And again, the fact that the angel bases his oath on God demonstrates that this angel is not, is not Jesus, because Jesus doesn't have to swear by anyone or anything. He just, he just states it. It also proves God's greater than the angel, because the, and the angel serving him. Look at what the angel says in this oath. This is what he swears. It's the end of verse 6. The angel swears there will be no more delay. That there will be a delay no longer. But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, the voice of the trumpet, the seventh trumpet, the voice of the seventh angel is about to sound. And then the mystery of God, that which hasn't been revealed up to this point. Again, the mystery in the Bible is something that God hasn't revealed in, in time. It's clear to Him. Just like in Ephesians 5, there's the mystery of, of Christ in the church when it's related to husbands love your wives like Christ loved the church. For revelation is progressive in the Bible. And this is something that hasn't happened yet. It's been shut up until now. But it's about to be finished. It's about to be completed in verse 7. And it's not something that we should be unaware of because God's preached it to His, his servants and his, and his prophets. What He swears and the topic of the book and the the cry of the angel and the response of the, of the seven thunders is, is the time of God's patience has ended. The book in the angel's voice announces the final outpouring of the day of the Lord. There will be no more delay. The time is at hand. War is coming, and it's coming by the hand of the Almighty. And since the fall in the garden, God has been holding back His own justice. When you think about how He's been restraining... Um, the idea that, that anybody deserves anything is, is, is just nuts. <laughs> I mean, we all deserve hell. And the fact that God didn't just fry Adam and Eve right there on the spot and start over is mercy. Um, God isn't unkind whenever He, he, he allowed the, the Noahic flood to, to, to take place. He's just. He's righteous. They shouldn't have even been able to multiply and made it if, it, if, it's, if it's only justice. It's mercy that... Restrain that. It's, it's God's mercy that, that He preserved Noah and his family to, to allow, the, allow the, the, the second garden scene after that, you know, multiply and fill the earth. It's, it's God's mercy that He chose Abraham. It's God's mercy. Abraham is, is a pagan out of the land of Ur. He's not worshiping God. He's not looking for God. It's God's mercy that He made the promise. It's God's mercy that He said that there would be a seed that would come from the woman. It's God's mercy that, that out of Abraham and then Isaac and then Jacob and 
in Egypt. It's God's mercy that a nation would come. It's God's mercy that there's a land. It's God's mercy that they received the law. It's God's mercy that the prophets came and proclaimed. Just like we saw in Mark and John the Baptist, it's God's mercy that any time has passed. And you think of how much sin and evil and wickedness and and how, how long people have been in rebellion from the time of the garden and what God has put up with. Um, and yet, the angel says there will be delay no longer. He's been long-suffering. He's been patient with men. He's been pleading with sinners. He's been sending out laborers into his harvest. But now the edge of the night has fallen and the time is at hand. It's the angel swears by heaven. Jesus describes this day um, in Matthew chapter 13, in verse 47 through 50, if you want to turn back there. Matthew chapter 13. He describes it in a parable. It's this scene of the dragnet. Matthew 13, verses 47 through, through 50. Gives the parable of the hidden treasure and the pearl of great price. And then he gives this parable of the dragnet in verse 47. And again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet cast into the sea, gathering fish of every kind. And when it was filled, they drew it up on the beach. And they sat down and gathered the good fish into containers, but the bad they threw away. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth and take out the wicked from among the righteous and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of, of teeth. Now when I think of fishing, and you think of fishing, you probably think of a... Um, you get a line and I'll get a pole and we'll go fishing in the crawdad hole, right? But when boats fished, there was a throwing net that they used, which was typically the way that, that they fished. It was a round net with weights and that could sink to the bottom of the, of the lake. It, it kind of, when I was in grade school, we would get the parachute out. And the kids would get around the parachute and they would shake it and they'd throw it up in the air and then get under it. This, this idea of a net and it had weights on the outside of it and it would sink and whatever it fell over like a, like a canopy, it would, it would come to the ground and when they pulled the rope, it would cinch it up and then whatever was in the net, they would, they would draw it up. But there was a, there was another kind of net that Jesus talks about here in, in Matthew. It's Matthew 13. It's called a drag net. And it would be a large curtain-like net that would be, that would be draped between two boats. And it could be really, really large. And there would be weights on the bottom of it. And they would, they would pull it out and it would drop down to the bottom of the sea. And then the boats would make their way with this net between them to the bank. And it would drag whatever was in the sea. Nothing could escape the dragnet. It would catch everything. Good fish, trash fish, whatever it might be. And they would drag it up onto the shore. And then the fishermen would come and separate the fish that they were looking for versus the trash. And then the other was 
was discarded. And Jesus says, so it will be in verse 49 at the end of the age. God's been pulling this, his great dragnet through, through time, inching closer and closer until this day that the angel is describing. And, and as that net, the fish bump into the net, the reality of, of judgment that's, that's, that's going to reach a point, they just, fish just swim away. They, and yet they're, they're swimming right toward the, toward the shore because nothing can escape the, escape the net. And the angel in Revelation 10 says the net is about to be pulled up on the shore and all that is in the sea will be laid bare on the bank. And the angels will come and sort the good from the bad and the ones who don't know Christ will be thrown thrown into the fire. It's a topic that the angel is, is proclaiming. Turn back over to Revelation 10. This is what John hears. And that message is first for him. And he gets this strange command and he gets this urgent commission to preach. Verses 8 through 11. He starts with absorbing the, the message. Verses 8 and 9. Look at verse 8. Then the voice which I heard from heaven, I heard again speaking with me. This is the voice from heaven. It's God. Go take the book which was in the hand, which is open in the hand of the angel, who stands on the sea and on the land. Third time that's been repeated. So I went to the angel telling him, give me the little scroll. And he said to me, take it and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be, it will be sweet as, as, as honey. John is told to take the little book from the angel from his hand and, and eat it. And again, symbolism, it, it means to take in God's Word. Um, it's a graphic illustration of what we're supposed to do with, with, with the Word of God, the truth of, of God. We're to, long for it like milk, or to eat it like bread, we're to digest it so that it becomes part of us, so that we'll be nourished by it. John's supposed to take this message that's in this book of, of judgment, the final outpouring, and he's supposed to he's supposed to absorb it, he's supposed to take it in. And the angel tells him he's going to have a reaction. He tells him it's going to be bittersweet. It's going to be sweet to the taste, but bitter once it sinks in, once it gets down into your, into your stomach. You ever eaten something that tastes really, really good, but you've had it before and you know exactly what's going to happen about three hours later? So, if you're like me, you take the Pepsi AC or something like that. Rather than being smart and not eating it, you know, you go ahead and take the antacid so you can eat it anyway. John is told that this message is going to be sweet to the taste, but bitter once it, once it sinks in. The Word of God is sweet, regardless of what it says, isn't it? Psalm 19, verses 9 through 10 says, The fear of the Lord 
is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They're righteous altogether. They're more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb, the word of the Lord. It's sweet. But it has some bitter aspects to it too, doesn't it? As John considers the final judgment of God and he sees, he imbibes, he takes in, he soaks in this, this full day of the Lord, there's a, there's a sweet anticipation of God's victory and His coming glory. There's also a bitter reality. Seeing God's full furious wrath falling on those who rejected Christ and John's reaction is the reaction of every true believer. What it should be. The way that we should respond to judgment is the way that John responds here. And we rejoice that evil and sin will be punished. But we should weep over those who will be swept away in the flames. I mean, don't you feel the tension? You feel this same tension whenever you see the, the world shaking its fist in, in God's face. Um, you hate evil. You see evil being committed around the, around the world and it seems to go unpunished. Is there something that wells up inside of you saying, that's not right? You know, you long for God to do something about that. You long for God to reign and, and His justice to come. And what balances that is the love of God and knowing that He's shown mercy to us. We know we too should have been swept away, but have been shown mercy. And so we desire others to, to taste it as well. God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. None. I don't care how wicked they are. Whether they're as wicked as you or wicked as you think somebody else is, God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. His justice demands it. And here he is pausing. And here he will send John to plead. The Bible says the angels rejoice over one sinner who repents. And on the flip side, we ought to be sick over, over one who perishes. And John just doesn't see one who's going to perish. He sees millions who are going to perish. And both of those reactions are appropriate. The judgment of God leads us to rejoice in our security and leads us to warn others who, who will repent. And that's exactly what God commands John to do. John has a commission to proclaim the, the sweet and yet bitter message. He says at the end of verse 10, When I'd eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And they said to me, you must prophesy. Notice it's a, it's a command. You must prophesy. You must prophesy again. You must warn again. Many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. Warn them about what? About the bitter judgment. It's a way of saying everyone. The... Many peoples and nations and tongues and kings, just like there will be the redeemed from every tongue and tribe and nation gathered around the, the throne, there will also be those in, in many nations. And John is 
commissioned to proclaim it to them. Um, notice it says again. They've heard it before. But they must hear it again because of the seriousness of it. And here God once again shows He is merciful. And He sends out a preacher to warn mankind of their condition. Even though in the angel's oath He says there will be delay no longer. It's coming. It's not going to be any delay. But until it falls, until the heart stops beating, there's hope. Because there's hope in Christ. And I just wrote, if that's what God's command is even after the tribulation begins, how much more should should I be doing that now before it even arrives? You must proclaim or prophesy again concerning many peoples and nations and tongues. And, and I think what he's saying here is telling them what's going to happen to them, that you are part of this judgment. I hope you love people. I know you do because you love the Lord. I hope you love them enough to tell them the truth. Um, tell them the truth about hell. About what's coming. You know, I think there's a there's a there's a fear there's a there's a worry that about telling others about Christ that, that you don't want to be offensive and you know and you the gospel is offense it, it is offensive to human beings and you don't have to be offensive in the way that you share it you don't have to be a knothead okay um, but sharing the message if that offends. That's part of it. Um, the gospel divides. It's, it's obviously better to offend a person now and lead them to heaven than let them go unoffended to hell, as I'm sure you've heard before. And I, and I just This week, I just want you to, to, to be thinking about Revelation 10 and, and the two witnesses coming next Sunday night, Lord willing, the next time that we preach. I'm not sure if family gatherings next Sunday night or not, standing here, but... And just let it sink in. This is real. Hell's real. Um, people are there right now. And, and I'm saying that to myself as well as you. There's, there's almost this... You know, when you're confronted with this topic of eternal torment, it's emotionally so painful that, that you, you almost have to disconnect from it. You can't handle it too long. I mean... There will be times when, I'm, when I've been studying Revelation or thinking about, about the reality uh, of hell that you just burst into tears. It's, just, it's, it's almost uncontrollable. And then you, you, know, gain, your, you gain, your compo- gain your composure. Um, but God's placed it in His Word. He spoke more about that than He did heaven because He wants people to turn to Christ. Turn to himself. And while thousands will perish in the judgment, and they'll go to that place never to escape, and that's a bitter truth, those who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ shall find mercy. And that's good news worth sharing. Isn't it? 
Second Peter chapter two verse nine. The Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. A sweet and yet bitter message. And we'll see how Revelation continues to unfold next time. Don't you bow your heads. Maybe even as you were listening and preaching, the Lord put someone on your heart. Maybe someone that God's given you an opportunity to share with in the past. Maybe somebody that you have. And um, you know their condition. And Maybe you would just lift them up in prayer. Maybe you would pray that God would give you a door of opportunity to to share with them again this week. Um, maybe you do that faithfully. Rejoice. Um, the reward for your labors, while you have nothing to do with their salvation, you're a faithful laborer gathering in the Lord's harvest. When you get there, and you meet the Lord, there'll be people there because of of your labor. What a blessing that will be. Father, my mind goes back to the song, Must I Go and Empty-Handed. I used to sing. And um, Lord, I pray even this week that you would, you would burden my heart for the reality of judgment, that you would remind me of the glorious mercy that I have received And then as those two things are mingled together, you would help me to be aware of people around me and give me opportunity to share the gospel with them. I pray the same thing for my brothers and sisters. Thank you for your word. Thank you for how clear it is. Thank you, Lord, for exposition. Thank you that that we can understand what you have declared and use it in our lives. It is so practical. It is so applicable when we get it right. Dismiss us now with your blessing. We love you. Thank you for loving us first in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless. Hang around fellowship.